to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Halstrom. How are you today, Chris? I am doing great, Jody. How are you? I'm doing all right. We're finally getting the weather report here. Today is snow, and it's yeah. not supposed to rain again for a while, so that's a good thing, because it Wh- snowed before, and then it rained a bunch, so it all went away, and now it's snowing again. That's enough for the weather report. Okay. Well, I'll just tell you that here in LA, I actually had to drive with my windshield wipers on yesterday. So it was chaos, I tell you. <laughs> chaos. Um, nice. Yeah. But so the weather is switching here as well. Yeah. Yeehaw. So enough of the weather report, but I'm sitting here wearing a sweater today because it is a balmy 58 you in Los Angeles today. Look at me. I'm uh, in a t-shirt. <laughs> I know. But I am a wuss because I've lived in LA for the past... Hundred years. Anyway, yes, we're we're mismanaging what we're talking about today, and that is a listener request from listener Roger, either Lavalie or Lavalle. Which one is right? Let us know, Roger. Roger had questions about project management and scheduling and things, so we're going to delve in a little bit deeper into that today. How do you want to yeah. kick it off, sir? Well, I think what you're just starting about, just the overarching topic of managing your time. Yes. This can be difficult to do because of various reasons, and none of us are immune to it. I think there is a huge temptation to overschedule yourself. That can have a lot of negative impacts. That it can. It leads to being overworked. mm It can often be stressful. That's putting it lightly, yes. Yes. (laughs) The idea when you get to that point is that quality ends up becoming compromised because you're not taking a moment in between projects or you're not taking a moment to just unload everything that you're doing when you're working yourself that hard. Yeah. I've been there. I know you have as well when you're – I think it comes from sort of like a fear of – Turning people down, fear of missing out on something. If I just turn this down, I'm going to never work with that person again, right? The key that you're saying there, I think, is the quality control. Yes. It is very easy that it suffers because you're burned out and you just don't have the time to do everything as well as you ideally want to be. Especially if you're on a deadline. Yeah. And one of the things in that over-scheduling type thing, as you're mentioning, that Roger was lamenting about is that a project doesn't get done in the scheduled amount of time. And then yeah. he's booked three months out, I think he said. And thus, how does he get somebody back in to finish off a project that didn't get finished? Right. And that's when part there's... of overscheduling and being overworked and stressing out and the quality's going down and you're not getting things done in time. And that's a problem. That is a problem because we all know that it's like a feast or a famine business in a lot of cases, right? So very much sometimes can, yes. you have these projects where you will be overworked, but when you're knee deep in a project, it can be tempting to, oh, I'll take on this as well and I'll just be do this and it's not working. Right. Overscheduling yourself might sound like a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. It is a problem. Right? Because you can't deliver and it's unsustainable. Yep. So, now, on the flip side of that, there's underscheduling. Right. And when you do that, you're likely to experience what? A whole lot of downtime. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which you have to take some downtime, right? I mean, it's finding that balance that works for you. 
on a positively more of a downer term like that would be like, well, it's not viable economically if this is your only gig, right? If you're working a day job, then it might be less of an issue for you because you got something else to carry it. But if this is your main gig and you're not booking yourself as often as you should, well, the lights end staying on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> there is that. I'm going to give a recent example of a recording experience that I had with another studio. And that studio is in the middle of nowhere and it is a underutilized studio in my opinion, based on what I conversed with, with the engineer that was there and with the scheduling that they did have. Now he was rather green. So mm -hmm. when I came in, I don't know if the schedulers for the place had given him enough of an update of what I was planning on accomplishing Okay. at a level that he could work with, I guess is a good way of saying it, because he was very, very green, if I didn't just say that. I had to show him things <laughs> in order okay. to try and work faster. And unfortunately, he was still very slow. I get it. There's not a lot of work coming into that studio because it's a very, very esoteric studio environment and the, most of the people they get in there are the kind of people that all they have to do is set up the microphones they just hit play there's no setup in terms of anything other than that they don't have to worry about timing they don't have to worry about other takes and overdubs and that sort of thing i was the first person to come into that studio and do that hmm. and so the allotted time was four hours which had it been with an engineer that knew what the hell he was doing, we probably would have been done in two. Okay. But since he didn't know what he was doing, we ran way over. <laughs> and he gave right. me, instead of four hours, gave me six. And he stayed way late. He was learning and he was happy right. about that. These kind of things can happen. The nice thing is, is they weren't overbooked. <laughs> So right. we could run over in two hours. You got to get out of here, man, because we got, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Underscheduling yourself when you're learning is not necessarily a bad idea because things will take longer than you anticipate until you know your shit. Sure. It's not so, economically viable, but it's the experience that you're going to have. Well, to but yeah, but th then you're at a different point where the scheduling thing is probably not a huge issue it's for It's not you. as big an issue, Right. Right. When it comes to this, then who and when and what kind of projects should we take on? Do you have any kind of checklist type of thing that you go through and mentally when you're approached to do stuff? Yes. The first thing that I will do in talking to an artist that is looking to be produced or mixed or whatever from me is have a conversation with them. And I know we've sure. mentioned this on the podcast before. If I'm going to be mixing... I have to hear the tracks. If I'm going to be producing and recording and overseeing everything, I have to hear the music in some way, shape, or form, whether it's them doing it live in a rehearsal space, at a venue, a demo that they have, whatever it is. If I do not feel the music and have a fuck yeah moment about it, mm -hmm. I will turn them down. I have to feel fuck yeah about working with that person from a personal standpoint and from a musical standpoint. Yeah. The second I don't know thing about that you, but that's me. Yeah. I am like that as well. When I hear the music, if I don't feel like I don't have to be blown away by it, if I am awesome. For me, I have to feel like I can contribute something to that mm -hmm. and do something with it. Ideally, I'd like it. 
you know? Uh, yeah, because that's the thing I'm trying to say is that that fuck yeah moment is that I believe in this, whatever it is that's coming to me. And I believe I can add something to that to make it better. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I think the second part that you said as well is equally important for me, at least. Mm-hmm. That's the people involved in the project. You're going to be dealing with these people a lot during the project. And if these are people that I don't enjoy hanging around or conversing with, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. Why would I want to hang around with people that make me miserable? Right. You know, you're hanging out with these people a lot. You're going to talk to them. And if they just bum you out and you're just not on the same wavelength, mm-hmm. it's like, you know what? I don't think I'm the guy for you. Yeah. That's another thing that I have on my checklist. The other one that I have that and this could admittedly sound a little bit dicey and we'll get into it later on why. Could this lead to other work that I want to be doing? Uh-huh. Are there other opportunities here? Like let's say that it could be trailer track that you're doing or for something else. Could there be additional work that could be beneficial for both parties? Right. Then that's a good thing. That's another check mark in the positive column, right? Uh-huh. To be perfectly crass, what's the money like? That's not crass. That's, that's realistic. Well, right. But it can be rough as like, oh, I just, hey, I'm a whore. Just pay me and I'll do it, you know. If the, <laughs> if the first three are not there, it doesn't matter the kind of money to me. And I've kind of trained myself how to kind of think like that. Now, if somebody throws an obscene amount of money at it, then it's a one-off. I'll do that, you know. <laughs> but uh, You're showing your moral standpoints right now. <laughs> it can be seen like that, but it also is a business, yeah, right? Yeah, it is so, a business. Now, imagine if that money is less, but the music is awesome, it's really cool people, and I see that this could be a good working relationship going forward, then I'm That's less That's a decision to be made. That. Right. That's purely case-by-case basis. But on the flip side, you talk about the money being obscene. Would you take right. it if the music still sucks and the people are just toxic? No. The music I could handle... But if the people are just toxic, no, there's no amount of money that would make it worth no, it. No, it's not worth it. It's just a pain in the ass. Because it, it, it's just going to bum me out. It's going to bum my friends out. It's going to bum my family out because I'm going to be a miserable person to be around for <laughs> the, the duration of that project. And I, I don't want that for anybody. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I wouldn't Do you have anything else that, that you like to look for? Because I think those are the big four for me. Well, they are the big four. And I agree with the concept of it doesn't matter how much money is tossed at me if the people just suck. Yeah. Yeah. I I won't do it. It, I've turned down good gigs. (laughs) Somebody recently reminded me, if I had a nickel for every gig you turned down, uh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. We have a mutual friend that told me he stopped taking on a certain amount of clientele because it was a miserable experience in his studio. Mm-hmm. He had people there that were carving into his board and stuff. It's like- He gets, why the, what the what? Yeah, I'm not gonna do that anymore. That's just crazy. I mean, but that can be a toxic thing, but that's something that I think we have to ask ourselves when we're taking on new projects as well, right? How much of this is hitting the mark? And again, is the scheduling right? Do I have room for it? Mm-hmm. The idea of scheduling and how long something will take is an experience thing. Yes. 
And you have to learn from your prior mistakes. If you're constantly having projects that are going longer than scheduled time, you're not scheduling you're not, enough time. Exactly, you're not <laughs> scheduling enough time and you need to change that. It depends also what they're doing in your studio. Are they doing everything? Are they coming in, they're tracking, editing, and they're mixing all in your place? Or are they tracking somewhere else and bringing you stuff to edit and then they're going somewhere else to mix? Or are they just mixing at your place? If you're doing the whole ball of wax, you need to have enough experience to know how long each thing's going to take. And this also goes to that concept of having the conversation with the musicians. One of the reasons why I like to see them live in their rehearsal or a live environment is to know how good those players are. Yeah. Because if those players are not very good, it's going to take longer. <laughs> it's going to yeah. take longer and that's a headache right. for for me anyway. Yeah. And I've had more than one instance working with drummers who get really upset with me because their timing sucks and I call mm. them out on it well, who the fuck are you that you're telling me that my timing sucks? I've been playing drums forever. To blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't care. Your timing yeah. sucks. And right. no amount of how long or who, whatever you've done is going to change that. It's also a thing that where if you're working with people that and you go see them live or whatever, mm -hmm. and they could be really, really good live. And once that red line is on and you're recording, mm -hmm. Some people get like that red light syndrome, right? Where I, I can't play in time and they, they get too inside their heads. Oh, that, that's easy to work with. That stuff I can do. <laughs> but that's that's another issue, right? But It is an issue, but it's easy but, to get around. I have come yeah. up with some rather interesting ways to get people to play in time when they can, depending on cool. how they talk about their ability to play in time. Yeah. There you go. It's so, called session players. No. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious here. Obviously, you have to draw from your experience there, and there's no other way of getting that experience than just going through it. Well, that's not necessarily uh, true. You can second with somebody at another studio to get experience where you're not on the line, so to speak. That, yeah, like a mentor type I, I was thinking, well, there is that, but I was thinking more from the standpoint of how long it takes you to do a certain task. Yeah. Here's a good way to do that. There's plenty of apps out there. One of them called Time, T-Y-M-E. That's an easy way for you to click start on a project task. Mm -hmm. And when you're done with that task, click stop. And it just tracks your time for how long it took you to do that. And you do that through a couple of different projects. You'll understand, as long as you also take notes of what you did during that project, you'll understand what that time takes. And I've gone through lists and people that have recorded with me is like, why are you setting up this and doing that? I need to know how long it takes if I've never worked with you for whatever reason. For my general knowledge, I know how long something takes me to do. Yeah. And so I can then price it accordingly. And that's going to lead us into our next section right after a word from our sponsors. And we're back. We're going to move on to client expectations. What's the first thing that comes to mind under that? You have to stress to the client that Things generally take a little bit longer than you think they're going to do. Generally? But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen a band. This is, again, during my days at MI. I was invited to a tracking session, and it were all these fantastic players. They did backing tracks for, I think it was 12 tracks mm -hmm. in 
it was less than a day, right? And sure. that just witnessing that was like, holy hell. You're talking that, about top-notch players that can read down a chart and slam that shit out, though. Exactly. And There's that's, a big difference, yes. There is a big difference. I find that client expectations can kind of fall into two camps or two issues, mm-hmm. right? One is the time thing. Thankfully, I haven't had it so much, but you read about it all the time and people say, well, we'd like to track 10 songs in a day and can we please have a rough mix of every track by the time we go home? And, oh, by the way, we need to be out here by nine, you know? (laughs) So, and I don't know why why people think that. I think people think it's, well, you know, the song is only five minutes long. If we have that, it shouldn't take us more than two hours to track these 10 songs. It's like, no, you're going to mess up. There's going to be setup time. There's going to be all of that kind of stuff. Well, there's also unrealistic expectations coming from interviews they've read or interviews they've watched where some old artist says, oh, well, we knocked all this stuff out in a day. And then it was the rough mix that ended up going out. Well, that's blind luck on your part, mister. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And then you're also comparing yourself to artists of of that level that could bang that out, right? You always hear like, oh, the first Black Sabbath album was recorded in a day and mixed in another day, right? Yeah, but that was Black Sabbath and they were well-oiled machine when they did it, you know? And at the same time, that production doesn't stand up today what you would want to do from a modern artist, unless you're doing something very similar. Very retro, But the idea of the expected time of knocking out 10, 12, 15 songs in a day, unless you are perfectly rehearsed and then you have a studio that knows how to nail this stuff fast, this is unrealistic expectations, which falls into the next category of what you're talking about or the camp of expected quality. Yeah. And then the idea is what is the quality that you expect to come back to you? Right. Let's take the – Part where you're just doing the mixing. You're getting these tracks and, and that have been recorded by somebody else, presumably, mm-hmm. or the band themselves or whatever. But the quality of those tracks will obviously have a big impact on what the end result will be. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds really, really obvious when you say it out loud, but... Some people have that expectation where, yeah, we recorded all of this in our garage and it usually sounds great when we rehearse in there, right? (laughs) Can you make it sound like the last Muse record or whatever? No, I can't. (laughs) We can definitely improve stuff, but that's where I think the unrealistic expectation of people have that you have all these tools, just make it happen. Sure. You were going to say something there, so so go ahead. It all comes down to the producer or the mix engineer or the studio that's working this thing to know what their skill set is to reach that goal that the band is looking for. Yeah. And if you don't have that and you're telling them that you do, you're being a fraud. (laughs) That's a good way of saying it. There is that. If you do have that talent and the band doesn't, you have to be realistic in telling them this is going to be a lot more work than you think it will be. Yeah. And also, you said there as well, I think it's really important to keep in mind, it's like it's your skill set as well. It's not entirely up to just the quality of the tracks, right? Mm -hmm. That helps a lot. But if you don't yet have the experience or the skill set to polish these tracks, that's going to set the bar for what what the outcome is going to be. Right. And knowing your 
skill set and how good you are at it is how you start to figure out what your time is actually worth to get these things done. Yeah. And that's sort of like the next thing here that we have to think, know what your time is worth. Right. And this yeah. can be a hard thing to figure out because there's more than one factor that goes into it. Obviously, how talented are you at doing what you do as a producer, right. as a mix engineer, as a tracking editor, whatever. And then what's your market? How is the market around you related to that? Yeah. When we look too much at the market, I think that can be – Recipe for disaster. Now, let me explain what I think here. It's not like you ignore what people around you are charging. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very easy here that we get to a race at the bottom type of a thing. Well, and that's we see, the thing of like you fear that you're not going to get the work, so you charge less to get the work. Yes. And then somebody else comes along and charges less than you. And then yeah. another person, and it becomes a spiral race to the bottom is what you're trying to say. Exactly. When you're constantly undercutting yourself and what ends up happening at that point is like you have a boatload of work, but you're not making any money and all your time is used up. Yeah, and you and have you nothing to kind of show. You burn out and you got nothing to show for it. Yes, right. Crazy busy. I work seven days a week, but I'm still struggling to make ends meet. Sure. Right, that, that's not a good thing. And on the flip side of that, and this is a prime example of something that came back to me as uh -huh. a conversation from another producer in the area that I'm at. He was talking with about four or five other recording studio type guys who run studios or produce or record engineer type things. They were all talking about how much they charge per song. One guy rattled off, oh, I charge 400 Another guy goes, well, I charge about 450 And then a third guy apparently charges 275 And another guy charges like 750 or something. And this guy spoke up and said, well, you guys all know who Jody is. And he's like, yeah, we do. <laughs> and of course, well, you want to know how much he charges? <laughs> and of course, he tells them my price. And everybody goes, what? Because <laughs> my price is substantially higher than the market around here. I do not try to get this market. Right. It's not my market. And so I yeah, don't take clients on, especially around here, unless I know they can handle the workload and most of them can't. So okay. I charge substantially more. And I think for a few of those guys, they decided, holy cow, I got to charge a bit more. Now they still don't charge close to what I charge, but they did raise their prices. Good for them. Yeah. It can be difficult to talk about I've done things where in my past I've said like, okay, I'm at this level in my skill set that I think is realistic. Uh -huh. And this is what I want to perform a certain task. Like I have now, I have set rate for when I do a mix uh -huh. for people. And sometimes they say, whoa, okay, that's more than I want to spend. And then that's fine. I'm not their guy. Right. I don't want to work myself ragged and do all the things and do all the knowledge and the skill set that I have at this point and my experience, I'm not undercutting myself because it just leads to me not being happy and right. essentially working more than I... More than that's healthy. Too much stress. There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. And it can be hard to say no to people. I had to do that when they go, well, can you do it for this? And I said, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And, then, and that goes back to your whole thing of like, well, if it's really super awesome and I really like the people, maybe I'll charge less. And if I don't, there's really no 
amount of money. And that saying that and talking about the fact that I'm probably close to at least three times to five to 10 times more expensive than people around here is that I got contacted by an artist who was trying to get a price out of me and I didn't know why. And then I just named off some ridiculous number. And I now know why it was because they were trying to get a lawsuit happening against another producer in the area. And then I got subpoenaed (laughs) and it was like, I told the lawyer, I said, it's not going to go well for you on this stand. If you subpoena me, because I wouldn't work with your artist. Once I found out who it was, how terrible they were. I said, I would have never taken the job in the first place. And I will say that on the stand. Yeah. Fortunately that settled out of court and I didn't have to be brought in. Yeah. See, when we get into this and we talk about pricing and stuff, it can sound, I think, really either cynical or crass or, or self-indulgent. But I think the bottom line here- You want to do that good work. To, that's not cynical, crass, or self-indulgent. I'm sorry. That's just right, right. But, but that we have to set these standards for ourselves. And what we think, and here again, it comes to your honesty, right? If yeah. you're just starting out, you have to set a lower rate because you're learning and you're doing things. But- is not to sell yourself short in setting what your time is worth for what you can deliver. Mm-hmm. And this goes along with the expectations. One thing that it's a great saying that, that I want to bring up here. I've seen this from like a tattoo studio <laughs> where it says permanent on good the body. Wor- good work is not cheap and cheap work is not good. There is that. And the other one is if you think a professional is expensive, just wait and see what an amateur will cost you. There right? are those two. And they're basically the, the same type of thing here, right? I'm not suggesting that anybody sets himself up for like Chris Lord Algae or Bob Clearmountain rates because <laughs> chances are you're probably not one of those guys. No. But being that and doing a mix of five bucks, there's probably a range in between there that you feel that you're comfortable with that is realistic for your skill set, knowing what your time is worth and what you can deliver, I think is key when it comes to all of these questions. And just to kind of throw a little bow on the whole thing of knowing what you're worth, generally speaking, most often, if you are better than the average around you, the idea for most people is to charge about 10 to 15% more than the average. Mm. Yeah. Of what everybody else is charging. Now, mind you, I'm not going for the market that I'm in, which is why my price is like so ridiculously different from the rest of the market. On that note there, Jody, I think it's also a healthy attitude to say that your own perspective, you're competing with yourself. You're always trying to improve yourself and that should be reflected in your rates. You can't really worry about what everybody else is charging to the degree that it starts affecting you negatively. There's Does that, that make sense? Sure. The last point that we want to bring up here is, again, with payment, but payment versus deliverables. Uh-huh. When to charge people and when to give them their product. Because this can get dicey, can't it? I've not experienced dicey, but I've heard dicey stories. This goes back to kind of like vetting your clients and the people uh-huh. that you want to work with. If you're working with less than honest people and you deliver the tracks and they just go, okay, nice knowing you before you get paid. Yep. And that's a position we don't want to be in. We don't like to be that cynical, but that's just business. You have to kind of protect yourself, right? Yes. So, well, a big have, one, 
and one that I like to use is yeah. getting half up front. Yeah. Before you even press record and have them walk in the door. Right. Once the agreement is, yes, we're going to record with you. Great. Throw down whatever the value of what it is the session's going to be. Give me half. Yeah. And then it's you not pay you the protect other yourself. half when you want the tracks on delivery. You get yeah. the rest. That's a good policy to have because it shows commitment from both of you, right? Look, I'm sending away this time uh-huh. and you're obviously serious about this. So let's get this ball going. That is a good thing. Now, if you're in the position that you have a manager that kind of takes care of all this for you. Then why are you listening to this episode? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably less of an issue for you. We have to consider all these things when we take on projects and how to deal with them. And it's just eliminating headaches. Yep. You know what your time is worth? How much time do I have to set aside for this project? And I think ultimately all of this will help with the scheduling when we're doing that. Yes. You have a saying that you at least was one of the people that I, I heard say this first. Okay. Yeah, I kind of like a thing when it comes to these projects. So what was that saying? Well, you tell me. I don't know. It was the idea of under promise and over deliver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As yeah, opposed to the other way around. Yeah. Because a lot of people in our industry, unfortunately, have very have big the, mouths. And they well, yeah, can't they back are, them up. Right. And they say, oh, I, I can do this and I can do this for you and it's going to be great. Then they can't. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the kind of stuff that gives this industry a bad name when people do that. Make sure that you underpromise and you overdeliver on what it is that you do, man. And charge appropriately for that. There you go. All right. We're moving on to our Friday Fines. Chris, what have you got for us today? I... Knew about this product from the past, but this week I actually have some personal experience with it. Uh-oh. Wink, wink, because you're kind of <laughs> involved in this one. Yeah, yeah uh, Native Instruments, the Cremona Quartet. Ooh, yes. Yes, and you know what I'm talking about. But it is a collection of four solo instruments. It is a cello, a viola, and two violins. Mm-hmm. And they sound absolutely amazing. These are instruments from museum pieces, old Stradivarian things, and they sound absolutely unbelievable. I knew they would, but I hadn't worked with them <laughs> until this week because My, I got some tracks. Included. Yep. Yep. And I got some tracks from a, uh, let's say, a podcast co-host this week <laughs> <laughs> with them. And they sound really, really good. So... Yeah, it's something that I might have to check in a little bit deeper on, maybe getting for myself here. So the Cremona Quartet from Native Instruments. Ah, yes. What about you? What have you found for us? Well, as of this week, Eventide has just dropped a multi-effects pedal bomb. Mm. It is called the H90, which to me implies that it is the next gen of the H9. Sounds like it. Yep. Yep. And in watching the video release of what this unit is, there are four channels of input, four channels of output. It has true effects bleed over. It allows for two different algorithms going at the same time. And it has 10 new weird algorithms, I guess, to the entire lot that probably also includes everything from their past, all packed into this little compact pedal 
that appears to generally be for guitar players, but I'm sure that this will be much like the Strymon Big Sky that we talked about last week. Yeah. You get you start using it for God knows what because it's an awesome piece of kit. Wow. So it's my a pick good time is the H90. Alive, man. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so my pick is the H90 Harmonizer from Eventide coming out this week. Very cool. Aw, yeah. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes of this lovely podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the phrase, keeping time, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion, like today's episode, for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say see you next week. Talk to you later, Jody. Thanks for listening, everybody.